0: a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health topics most of us are wondering about, but very few of us are talking about. Hi, and welcome to this episode entitled Menopause 101, and this is a really fun episode because we're going to go through 10 of the most common questions I get from my patients in the office about menopause, and these questions are definitely swirl around in women's heads, and either they've been too embarrassed to ask, or perhaps you have asked your provider and didn't get the answers that you were really looking for. So we're going to go through these to really sort of shed light on some of the very common symptoms and common questions that happen in menopause. The first and the most common question that I get is, how do I know when I'm in menopause? And the reason I get this question so much is because it's really not that straightforward. So the textbook answer of menopause is one year, 12 months of no menstrual bleeding. But not everyone follows the textbook. In fact, most of my patients don't follow the textbook. And what if you can't remember? So this is actually very common. A lot of my patients are very high functioning. They're very busy during this transition, and they simply can't remember if their last period was 10 months ago or if it was 16 months ago. And that can make a big difference. So if you haven't been keeping a menstrual diary, I recommend that maybe you start one just so in case you're starting to think about when menopause is, you kind of have an idea of when your last period was. Perhaps you can't go by your periods though because you've either had an ablation or a hysterectomy and you stopped having periods for many years. And so if you had a procedure where your periods simply stopped, but you had your ovaries intact, that means you were still making some estrogen, but it really is hard to tell when menopause was because you can't go by your periods. So one thing that I start to ask about is the last period. The next thing I'm going to ask you to think about is when symptoms started of menopause. So the most common symptoms of menopause are hot flashes, night sweats, night awakenings, worsen nighttime or daytime anxiety, maybe dysperunia or painful intercourse, and some other common symptoms like brain fog, hair loss, weight gain, and we'll get into all those as well. So those symptoms do tend to start when you start to lose your estrogen. And once you're in menopause, you really make very, very little, almost no estrogen anymore. So as the estrogen is declining and as you're entering that transition from perimenopause to menopause, you want to kind of keep a diary of when your symptoms started, especially if you can't use your last period. Kind of lining up when your symptoms started or when they became really severe can definitely help me in the office decide or your provider decide when you went into menopause. And then the next thing I'll do is potentially run some lab work. Oftentimes, I see women coming to me with a slew of lab work done. And in all honesty, the bare minimum is two different hormone labs that you need. The first is called an FSH or a follicle stimulating hormone. And the second is an estradiol. And I'd like to check your free estradiol levels. Now, to give you a reference range, if I have a 70-year-old in my office who stopped having periods one or two decades ago, and she's most surely in menopause, her FSH will be very high in in the 60s to 100s. And her estrogen will be very low. So it will come up as 0 or less than 10, whatever your reference range in your laboratory is. Now, if you're in perimenopause, your FSH may be low or maybe mid-tier. So by low, I mean less than 10. And mid-tier is really anywhere from between 10 to 40. And again, it's going to depend on your reference range in your laboratory. And your estrogen will be higher if you're not in menopause. So it will be somewhere in the 50s to 100s or maybe even higher. So those three things can help me determine when menopause was if you don't follow the textbook. So first, to summarize, when was your last period Two, what symptoms are you having and when did they start? And three, using some lab work to kind of help solidify those answers. Now, some women don't have symptoms and they fly through menopause perfectly. Um, You know, I don't see those patients in my menopause clinic, but I see them in my internal medicine clinic. And so a very small, about 10% of women are very lucky and don't end up having symptoms at all. This goes right into the next question, which is, when will these symptoms stop? And this is a really important question to answer because there is lots of myths that symptoms last for a short period of time or only this 12 months after your last menstrual period. And unfortunately, the truth is that symptoms typically last on average about 5 to 7 to 10 years. That's a pretty broad range, but the take-home point from this is that symptoms usually are not really quick. That does happen. Some women do only have symptoms for a short amount of time, but the majority of women do have symptoms for about 5 to 10 years. A very small percent of women, about 10% of women, will have symptoms that are sort of lifelong after menopause. And so what I want you to take from this is if you're having really severe symptoms that aren't seeming to stop and you've sort of been um, sticking it out or sort of suffering through it and you feel like this is really unnecessary or affecting your quality of life, I really want you to stop and seek out treatment. The best type of doctor is probably going to be a NAMS certified practitioner. So NAMS stands for the North American Menopause Society, and that's really the governing society for menopause in the United States, and there's similar ones in other countries. Unfortunately, there's only so many NAMS providers. So if you don't have a NAMS provider that's close to you, see if you can Find an internist or obstetrician-gynecologist who is very comfortable prescribing FDA-approved hormone therapy. Okay, so to summarize, symptoms of menopause most commonly last for about 5, sometimes to 7, and up to 10 years. A small percent of patients, about 10%, will have no symptoms of menopause, and another small percent, again, about 10%, are going to have symptoms that last almost the rest of their life. Okay, moving on to number three. The next question I get a lot is why are the -the over-the-counter medications no longer working? So the answer to this has a lot to do with something called the placebo effect. Now the placebo effect applies to almost any medication that you take. It applies even to over-the-counter medications that you normally take like ibuprofen and acetaminophen. So a placebo effect is basically your brain tricking you into thinking that that medication is working, right? And the power of persuasion is so strong. So the placebo effect works for almost all medications, so it will work for anything that you're taking over the counter as well. So if you're taking something over the counter, most likely you're getting a placebo effect from it, and that's why you're going to experience sort of a benefit from this for a couple of weeks to months, and then it's going to slowly wear off. So I want to break this down a little bit scientifically as well. So in the human body, there is three major types of estrogens. The primary body of estrogen is called estradiol, and that makes up about 90 to 95% of the estrogen in female bodies. And then the other 5 to 10% is made of two smaller types of estrogens, Esterol and esterone. These are very, very low potent estrogens. And these are often the types of estrogens that you see in the ingredient list in an over the counter option. And so it's mostly going to give you a placebo effect. That's why it will work for a short amount of time and then it will stop working after a certain time period. Okay, so on to the next question. Why am I all of a sudden gaining weight in menopause? This is. Actually, probably the number one question that I get, even though it's not the first one that I've talked about. And this is because weight gain is so frustrating in any time in a woman's life, but especially at menopause because again, my patients are really high functioning. They have to be at this time. They often have still young children at home or children that they're taken off to college. They're highly functioning at their jobs. They're starting their own businesses. They're just so amazing. So to be gaining weight at this time is super frustrating. And not only are they gaining weight, but a lot of times they haven't changed their diet or exercise at all, or oftentimes they've been ramping it up and they're still gaining weight. So it is so, so frustrating. So there is two big reasons why weight gain happens in menopause. So the first is an indirect cause. And indirectly, what I mean by that is it's caused from something else. So to me, I think one of the biggest issues with menopause is not being able to sleep well at night. When you're not sleeping well, meaning you're sleeping less than a consistent seven to eight hours, multiple studies have shown that this actually decreases your overall lifespan. So you really want to strive for seven to eight hours of sleep a night. So if you're sleeping less than that, which many of my patients are, in fact, they're often only getting one, two, three, four hours of sleep at night because they're waking up really hot and sweaty. Or if they're not having sweats, they're just, boom, waking up 2 a.m. wide awake and have a lot of trouble falling back to sleep. And they may be having some increasing anxiety or worries. And so it's just causing problems, both falling asleep and staying asleep. When you don't sleep well, that really starts to affect your metabolism the next day. So your cortisol is going to rise, which is your stress hormone. And when your cortisol goes up, that also is the same hormone that makes you crave carbohydrates. So you're eating more carbohydrates. And when you're not sleeping, you're also not going to be functioning at your best the next day. So, you know, there's lots of binge eating that can happen or night eating that can happen or mindless eating that can happen because you're not sleeping well. So there's sort of an indirect reason why the weight gain happens. I think the sleep is a big one. Not feeling well, feeling very fatigued, not being able to go to the gym because you're so tired. These are all indirect reasons that kind of stem from menopause that are slowly adding up to have you be gaining weight. So the other is a direct reason. So estrogen gets a bad rap for causing weight gain, and I believe that this myth stems from estrogen that's in birth control pills and when women started taking birth control pills they started taking them around the same time they went to college and when you go to college your eating habits change your sleeping habits change you maybe start drinking alcohol and eating things that you hadn't been eating before so the weight gain that occurred as women started college was associated with birth control pills, but study after study really shows that estrogen is not causing weight gain. In fact, I believe that estrogen is actually very good for the metabolism. So I don't say that estrogen is a weight loss medication. It actually probably has more of a null or slightly positive effect on metabolism. But you will see that your um, metabolism really crashes or changes at menopause. And that's when you lose all your endogenous or sort of your own estrogen levels. And so when menopause occurs and the weight gain starts, you really do start to see that it's not actually estrogen itself, but really losing estrogen is really directly affecting your metabolism. So in the Women's Health Initiative or the WHI, which is a very big study we know that the women who took estrogen replacement therapy actually had less progression to diabetes so what that means is the women who didn't take the hormones got more diabetes and the women who took the hormones actually had less diabetes so this means that the estrogen is affecting the glucose tolerance and other metabolic profiles that are causing some of the weight gain so When I do consult my patients and they decide they want to try hormone replacement therapy, I definitely see that it does help their metabolism. And this is anecdotally. And it's not going to help right away. I usually see this about 6 to 12 months after they've been taking it. And not necessarily, again, that the weight just falls off. It's just that by the time I see them for their one-year visit, they're feeling like they really have a better grasp on their metabolism. All right. Going on to question number five, why am I losing my hair? So this is very similar to the weight question in that it's very frustrating and, and really quite distressing for a lot of my patients. In fact, it's not uncommon for them to come in with a bag full of their hair and say to me, you know, I collected this just at the bottom of my shower from this morning, please help me because my, my hair is falling out in clumps or in patches. And oftentimes, um, my patients have seen several different providers just trying to find out why they're losing their hair. So it's not uncommon that they've sought attention with their internist and perhaps even seen a dermatologist, but it's not until they do try estrogen replacement therapy that they find that actually helps their hair the most. So again, the loss of estrogen is very well correlated with the shedding or thinning of hair this can actually even start before menopause in perimenopause the time leading up to menopause and oftentimes i will start my patients on a birth control pill which seems sort of counterintuitive to them they have either had their tubes tied or they definitely didn't think they could get pregnant at this time but i really use it not so much for contraception although i always say there is no guarantee that you won't get pregnant And, you know, oftentimes they'll start these birth control pills and they'll find that their hair is either falling out less and therefore it is looking a little bit fuller again. So that is a really common question that I get from my patients in menopause. Okay, so moving on to number six, which is how can I treat these symptoms? So this is a pretty lengthy discussion, and this is one of the big reasons why a lot of patients will come to see me is they want to know how they can actually treat these symptoms. So the gold standard, the best treatment is really going to be hormone replacement therapy. And what that's going to mean briefly is if you have an intact uterus, that's going to be an estrogen plus a progestin in some combination. And if you no longer have a uterus, which means you've had a hysterectomy, then you can just take an estrogen alone. And that is because the main role of the progestin is to protect the intact uterus from uterine cancer. So you never want to have an imbalance of the estrogen and the progesterone if you have an intact uterus. That is one of the main reasons why I strongly recommend only using FDA-approved hormone therapy. And if you have a NAMS provider, that's something they can be able to do for you. So when you get something that's compounded, a lot of times they're advertised as being much safer, but I argue that those are unsafe because by definition, if something is compounded, a pharmacist has made that and it is really hard for your physician to know exactly what you're getting. Now, if you have had a hysterectomy, meaning you don't have a uterus anymore, you can take a progestin. In fact, there are times when I do add a progestin to their regimen. One of the things that progesterone does is cause some sedation or sleepiness. So, this is really effective if you're having trouble sleeping. You can take a little bit of progesterone at night, and that does tend to help with sleep oftentimes. And I definitely argue this is much better than using some other addictive types of medications such as benzos or benzo-like substances like Ambien. Or what a lot of my patients do is self-medicate with alcohol. And the alcohol also causes weight gain. While it does help you sleep, it's probably not the best solution to the problem. There is lots of different preparations of hormone replacement therapy. You can do a oral preparation or you can do a transdermal preparation, which is something that you apply to the skin. So you could do a patch, a spray, or a gel. And there is many bioidentical FDA-approved options on the market. Now, a brief note about what bioidentical means The truth is, it's not identical to anything. And this is why you don't need a slew of labs because they're not going to actually make anything that's identical. Let me break it down for you. In menopause, you have very little and pretty much no estrogen left. We want to give you some estrogen and... It doesn't matter which way you're getting it, as long as your estrogen helps with your symptoms and it's not a super therapeutic or too high of a dose, and you're taking a balanced progesterone if you still have an intact uterus. The bioidentical means that it's plant-based, and it doesn't actually mean that it's identical to anything. So that is a really big common misconception and the term bioidentical is thrown around so much and I think it is used to sway people that something that may be compounded or very expensive or an injection is safer and I want to tell you the truth that FDA approved hormone therapy is a much safer route. And if you are seeking something that's compounded, it most likely means that you don't have a good provider in your area who's explaining these things to you. So this is really one of the reasons that my passion for this podcast came about is I want to bring this information to everyone. So what type of route you're going to use if it's oral or transdermal, if you're going to do an estrogen and a progesterone, if you're going to do a compounded like Premarin or Prempro or something more natural or plant-based or bioidentical like estradiol is a long conversation I have with my patients in the office. And what it really comes down to is it's, it's really about individualizing this. So what I like to do in the office is really learn as much about you as I can. I want to learn all about your past medical history and what medications you you might be taking. I want to know what happened during your pregnancies if you were ever pregnant and I want to know whatever what surgeries you've had if you had any surgeries because all of that information is going to kind of help me file away what's going to be the best for you. And then not only do I want to know all about your medical history, but I also want to know what are your health priorities and what are the symptoms that are bothering you the most. So if someone can take all those for you and sort of help find the right fit for you, that's really going to be the way you're going to feel your best. And a lot of my training doctors always ask me, Dr. Hirsch, what is your go-to medication for menopause? And I say, I really, I don't have a go-to medication. I have a long list of FDA approved medications and it really has to be individualized and targeted. And in 2018, there's so many medications on the market. There's newer medications that are a little bit more targeted. There's better medications if you have family histories of cancers, breast cancers, or blood clots. And so it's, there is no go-to. So you really want to find a great provider. So yes, hormone therapy is going to be the gold standard of Other options, if you don't want to take hormone therapy, you can do a local vaginal treatment, which is local vaginal estrogen, such as esterase, vagifem, premarin. You may have heard these or even tried these before. I will say these work very well for dyspareunia, which is painful intercourse, and vaginal dryness and often used very frequently to prevent frequent urinary tract infections. And they're really great for treating the GU tract, the lower genital urinary tract. But this preparation is really not going to help with any systemic symptoms that you're having. So if you think that's going to help with your hot flashes, night sweats, brain fog, it's probably not. Other options, if you can't take estrogen, you have a contraindication, such as you've had a blood clot or a PE before, are going to be low-dose SSRIs. And what an SSRI is, is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. They're also known as antidepressants, but it doesn't mean that your providers think that you're depressed. It's just that we've found that using them at very low doses blunts hot flashes. So if you can't take estrogen, you've had a history of cancer or PE, These are good options for you. Now, I have another podcast dedicated to discussing the risks and benefits of hormone replacement therapy and discussing a lot of the studies about hormone replacement therapy, and I really want you to listen to that podcast. It's one that I give to physicians, physicians in training, and it's really going to open your eyes to the safety and efficacy of hormone replacement therapy. Okay. Going on to the next question is, what are the risks and benefits of hormone therapy? So I just said I have a whole podcast dedicated to this, and I do, and it's a really long conversation, but very briefly, the biggest risk with hormone therapy is the rare risk of a blood clot, and I'm going to break that down for you. So this translates into a risk of one in a thousand women who are taking oral preparations, and 1 to 2,000 in women who are using a transdermal preparation like a patch, a spray, or a gel. So that means less risk of a blood clot if you use a transdermal approach. Now, many years ago when this data came out that transdermal options decreased the risk of blood clots, almost all providers sort of jumped ship and started only providing transdermal options. But it's really not that simple. In fact, the risk of these are really overestimated and transdermal is not the fit that's gonna work for everybody. So just because that risk is a little bit lower, it doesn't mean that that's exactly what you should use every single time. A lot of women think that there's a risk of heart disease and this is a topic that I'm going to go in great detail on in my other podcast. But what we have found very briefly is that When you take hormone replacement therapy within 10 years of menopause, this actually decreases cardiovascular disease and decreases all-cause mortality, which means it decreases death from all reasons. So there is not a risk of heart disease with hormone replacement therapy unless you're starting hormone replacement therapy 20 years out of menopause. So listen to that other podcast. And then a lot of women ask about the risk of breast cancer, and this is a very long conversation. Now, the risk of women taking PremPro, which is a compounded estrogen and progesterone, was an increased risk of two to four cases per 1,000 women who took hormone replacement therapy for five years. So this also got really overestimated by the media in the early 2000s. And what's really interesting is that women who take estrogen only, meaning they've had a hysterectomy, actually have reductions in breast cancer. And this has been found to be statistically significant. And what that means, if you don't know that scientific term, is it means it's really, really, really strong. Data that shows that women who take estrogen only, those are the women who've had hysterectomies, have reductions in breast cancer. So, again, the biggest risk is going to be the rare risk of a blood clot. Okay, moving to question number eight. Question number eight is, what is the role of progesterone? So if you've been listening to this podcast, you already have learned so much, and you know that the biggest role of progesterone is to balance the estrogen. So it is an absolute necessity if you have an intact uterus and you're taking estrogen that you are also taking a progestin. My f- favorite type of progestin to use is micronized oral progesterone at bedtime, 100 to 200 milligrams with a bite of food. I do prefer to use a natural micronized progesterone because in studies, it has been shown to have less of a increased risk of breast cancer. Another reason I like to use progesterone is because it can help with sleep at night. So it is a better product to use than addictive medications like benzos. And common names of those are Clonopin, Ativan, etc. One last really important point about progesterone is I really discourage using a compounded topically applied progesterone. And that's because when progesterone is compounded and applied this way, it doesn't absorb through the skin very well. And so there are lots of circumstances where women who have an intact uterus are not getting the balanced progesterone and they have increased risk of uterine cancer. So this is absolutely something that you want to make sure that you're preventing. So I definitely encourage avoiding transdermal preparations of compounded progesterone and really recommend you take it orally. Now, you can also take it vaginally and that has been shown to be very safe. It's just that most women do not want to use a nightly vaginal suppository that is messy and so that option I almost never have my patients stick with. You can use progesterone when it's combined in certain patches that are FDA approved and that is really the only role for a transdermal progesterone in my opinion. Okay, we're getting closer to the end, so we're gonna get to a really good one, which is what is the role of testosterone? And you know, testosterone is um, sort of a fun hormone because this is the hormone that really helps with libido. And oftentimes, um, I tell my patients, testosterone is not just a male hormone; it's just that men have ten times more than women. But when women lose the amount of testosterone that they have, they can definitely feel those effects. So the testosterone will also decrease around the time of menopause, and this can lead to loss of libido, which is very common in menopause. Now, the purpose of the sex drive is to reproduce. And once you've gone through menopause, your body knows that you're really not going to be reproducing anymore. And so you're not going to seek out intercourse like you did when you were in your 20s or like you seek out food, shelter, and water. But you probably want some libido back to show your partner that you still love them. Now, for some women, the loss of libido really doesn't bother them. And so if it really doesn't bother you and you could, Live the rest of your life without ever having intercourse again. You don't need any testosterone. But for the women that it bothers them, what I like to do is check their testosterone the first time that I see them in the office. And oftentimes, what I will do first is just start with the estrogen or the estrogen plus progesterone if they need that and have them come back to see me in a couple weeks to months. And a lot of times that's all they need because when women start to sleep better, they have less hot flashes, they feel more energy, they feel more like themselves, they already feel more interested in having sex. So you might not need that testosterone. But if you come back to the office and you've been on your estrogen replacement and you still feel your libido is low and your testosterone was low, I will try adding a low dose of testosterone. Now, women in menopause really only need an extremely low dose of testosterone. Now, I spent the majority of this podcast really stressing I discourage compounded hormone replacement, but disclaimer, testosterone is not FDA approved in the United States. Because of this unfortunate reason, testosterone still has to be compounded but you only need an extremely low dose. So I will do a topical or transdermal compounded testosterone, and that often does increase libido. Now, if the testosterone is super therapeutic, meaning it's way too high, you could have acne, facial hair, thinning hair on the top of your head, or a deepening of your voice, and so those will be signs that the testosterone is too high. I have seen... Many patients come to my office who have been getting non-FDA approved palate injections of hormones. And what a palate injection is, is hormones that are injected subcutaneously and stay in the system for three months. And I check their testosterone, it is sky high. They're having lots of the symptoms of high testosterone like acne and loss of hair. And I simply take them off all of their testosterone for many, many months and let that normalize again. So the important point is to understand that in menopause, you only need a very low dose of testosterone if your libido is low and that's bothersome to you. And you've tried estrogen and estrogen and progesterone if you need that and and it didn't help. All right, and moving on to the very last question, number 10, Dr. Hirsch, what if I have a family history of cancer? I get this one all the time because my patients think immediately that there will not be candidates for hormone replacement therapy. And that's really not the case. So if you have a family history, but not a personal history, what I do in the office is take a really good history. So before you go to the office, call those long-distant relatives and cousins and your parents and ask about your grandparents so that you know who had cancer and what type of cancer in your family. And as I make a chart, if it does look concerning or familial, I will often encourage genetic screening or genetic testing before we start hormone replacement therapy. Now, the difference between the genetic screening and the genetic testing is the screening is simply sitting down with a geneticist who is going to, again, go through your family history with a fine tooth comb and help decide if you are going to be a good candidate to have genetic testing for certain types of cancers and certain genes. If it doesn't seem that concerning, I will often start on hormone replacement therapy. But again, that is something that I'd have to individualize for you and sit down with you in the office and really discuss with you. Okay, so we've answered 10 of the most frequently asked questions about menopause that I get from my patients in the office. I hope this was informative and that you've learned something. If you have any lingering questions or I didn't explain something thoroughly, please find a way to send me a comment, email me, message me so that I can explain this for you because I really want you to get these points answered thoroughly. Well, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and hope that you listen in again soon. Bye.